There's nothing that we would have done with diet that would have prevented this. But let's be clear, if nobody were eating meat, we wouldn't have this pandemic in the first place because it began with the meat trade. If the global appetite for meat went away, most if not all of the pandemic plagues would go away. That's really important. Well, hello there. And welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thanks so much for giving the show a listen, or a view, or a download, wherever it is in the world that you are. We appreciate the fact that you are here. On today's show, we will be talking about eating as if the world depended on it. Really, aren't we all? Now more than ever, that is so important during this pandemic. And certainly, food choices aren't the only reason that we're in this position. But they are certainly a big part of it. Dr. David Katz, he will be here to discuss this. And really, food from the meat industry to the environmental impact to, of course, our health. And we're also going to be hearing about Dr. Katz's time working on the front line of the COVID-19 pandemic. You know, he was volunteering his services at a hospital in New York City at the height of the pandemic there. And you're going to hear him describe how it was a gut-wrenching experience as he saw ambulance after ambulance after ambulance bring in all of these patients. And while that is certainly a difficult thought for us to grasp. He did say that the speed at which all of the doctors there were learning about this emerging virus was just extraordinary. Week to week, how quickly they were learning, how much they would learn in seven short days. And then I also asked him flat out, if we could go back in time, And all of the doctors were practicing preventative medicine rather than being on the defense and treating symptoms, really going on the offense, doing preventative medicine. How much differently would this pandemic have played out? And then the next question naturally becomes, what does the future hold? Are we at a point? Is this the wake-up call that we need to truly lead a healthier future. I'm going to find out with Dr. Katz, but, you know, as a bonus, I mean, at the core, the exam room is all about nutrition. And yeah, we get a little scatterbrained. So yes, we got sidetracked talking about his new book, How to Eat. I mean, what a name for a book, right? How to Eat. We get sidetracked talking about one food in particular, everybody's favorite, talking about chocolate. Why does chocolate get a bad rap and how? Can chocolate play a role in a healthy diet? If you're a chocoholic, man, you're you're just going to eat this up. You're going to think this is the greatest thing since, well, chocolate. So that's a great conversation. And then also on the show today, Dr. Neil Barnard is here going to be talking about blood types and the role that they play in COVID-19. What does your blood type mean for your chances of developing COVID-19 and the severity of it? If, in fact, you do become infected, Dr. Barnard has new research and all the science that goes with it. 
Plus, he sticks around. We're going to be joined by Dr. Jim Loomis as well and answer a ton of your questions as we open up the doctor's mailbag. But before we get to any of that, let's start at the top with Dr. Katz. Let's all learn about eating as if the world depended on it. My next guest is a preventative medicine specialist and globally recognized authority on lifestyle medicine. He is also the author of the new book, How to Eat, the founding director of the Yale Griffin Prevention Research Center and founder and president of the True Health Initiative. Lots of credentials there. With that, we welcome Dr. David Katz to the exam room. (laughs) Dr. Katz, thanks for making the time. Nice to be with you, Chuck. Thank you. Let's actually start with the book, How to Eat. I mean, that's, that's kind of a broad statement right there. You know, there are so many differing opinions out there about what we should be eating, what's healthy, what's not. How should we be eating? Yeah, it, so it's, it is a broad statement, right? Um, and there are lots of opinions, but there, and everybody can have their own, but facts are different. You know, there's sort of a set of established facts about diet that's good for our kind of animal. And Mark Bittman and I focused on that. So I I co-wrote this with Mark Bittman, iconic New York Times columnist, uh, you know, master cook. And so we we actually joked with the title because, you know, it could have been how to eat parentheses, but not everything because Mark famously wrote how to cook everything, which, you know, I mean, it really is an American icon uh, of the, of the culinary arts. I, I, I never go anywhere without tripping over his book. It's, it's almost annoying. But it was a privilege to work with Mark, and we have very complementary knowledge, mine obviously about human health, lifestyle medicine, his about cooking and foodies, but also how food is sourced. So social justice in the food supply and uh, how we treat our fellow creatures and impact on the land. He's really interested and concerned about the planet and the environment as I am. Uh, And when you look through those three lenses, Chuck, you look at the effects of dietary patterns on human health, you consider as you must the impact on the planet because there are no healthy people on a ruined planet. And you think about the ethics. Are we treating other creatures decently? Uh, Your choice is narrowed down very quickly. We know that all good dietary patterns are whole food plant predominant. It's true of flexitarian, pescatarian, vegetarian, paleo, you know, low-carb, low-fat. If they're good diets, high-quality, scored objectively, they're all whole food plant predominant. If you then think about, I want to minimize my environmental footprint, I want to maximize my kindness and gentleness to, to fellow creatures, you quickly wind up in the realm of the diets that are more plant predominant to plant exclusive, right? So whole food. Uh, plant-based diets can be Mediterranean, that's plant-based, but it's not plant-exclusive, or you can go all the way to plant-exclusive, which would be the vegan version. Um, and that's the truth we tell in the book, that, that that's not negotiable. Yeah, sure, there's some latitude. You, you, a Mediterranean diet is inarguably a good diet, but you can't have any variant on the theme of a good diet if you're not mostly eating vegetables, fruits, grains, beans, lentils, nuts, and seeds, and mostly drinking plain water when thirsty. If you do all of that, there is some room around the margins for customizing your diet. And that's important too, because if there really were just one way to eat and we were wagging and admonishing fingers, some people would listen to us and some people would bail. If you say, no, actually, there are variations on a theme of eating well, 
eating in a pattern that's good for you, good for the planet, sustainable, the theme is not negotiable, but the variant that you and your family are willing to apply is, then I think we can engage more people. So that's the story Mark and I tell. And we cite the relevant evidence and we answer a lot of detailed questions. What about chocolate? What about coffee? What about meat? What about fish? What about dairy? What about eggs? What about lectins? What about gluten? You know, all of that. So we get into the weeds and answer all those questions too, which is why we say it's, you know, pretty much all your, your food and diet questions answered. And, and by the way, Chuck, just to close this out, Mark and I did two pieces together in New York Magazine and their online uh, blog, Grub Street, uh, that kind of went viral, which is, you, you, you hesitate to say that during a pandemic. It used to be a good thing. <laughs> it's no longer a good thing. Um, and that's where the book came from. So these were long form articles uh, that were Q&A, just sort of back and forth. The whole book is, it's, it's really unique because it's like a conversation. You know, the way we wrote it, and the way you read it, it's like Mark and I are at, at the coffee table. You know, we're just bouncing ideas off one another. And we say, hey, pull up a chair. So it's fun. It's easy. But it's evidence-based. It's, it's the real deal. And it, and it covers what's important about diet for all those different areas. What's good for your health? What's sustainable and good for the planet and the climate and, and aquifers and all those critical issues? Biodiversity, how we treat our fellow creatures and issues of social justice. Who's doing the work that's producing your food? That's important too. Let me ask you this. Uh, I have a what about question for you. You just rattled off about 10 there. Um, what about when you were a bright-eyed medical student just getting started uh, with your medical education? How did your view on nutrition and the social justice of food differ from where you're at today? Well, you know, first of all, I, I, I know a lot more now. Uh, thank goodness. Um, I also know a lot more about what I don't know. Uh, and, you know, I think that's part of a good education. If you're really doing your homework, you really get to know a space. Well, sure, you have genuine expertise and you know a lot. Um, but it's also humbling because you learn all the things you don't know. And um, you, you discover all the, the challenges that are really hard to overcome. In, in nutrition, everybody keeps waiting for nutrition news. The biggest news about nutrition is there is no news. You know, the, the places around the world where people derive the greatest benefit from their dietary pattern, they eat the way their great-grandparents ate. Uh, there is no news. Uh, we can't seem to accept that. But that's, you know, that's one of the critical challenges in talking about nutrition. So, uh, you know, my, my views have only evolved, honestly. There, there, there's never been a revolution in my views. Uh, you know, I was a product of the 1980s. We had sort of vilified fat at the time. So I was very cautious, for example, about my intake of nuts, as I thought, you know, a low-fat diet is the only way to eat well. It's now much clearer that it's the source of dietary fats and the quality of dietary fats that's the critical issue. So you can absolutely have a very low-fat diet that's extremely good because you're eating really good foods, vegetables and fruits, whole grains, very low in fat. If you're eating lots of those, your diet may be low in fat. That's fine. On the other hand, if you have a Mediterranean-style diet, it's still whole food plant predominant, but there's a lot of oil from extra virgin olive oil. There's oil from nuts and seeds. And so the total fat content is considerably higher. It doesn't seem to matter very much. Health outcomes are excellent both times. So you know, I think in those early days, I, I was a little more focused on macronutrients. And now I've seen all the ways we can get that wrong. You know, we cut fat from our diets and instead of eating more vegetables and fruits and whole grains, we started eating low fat junk food and got fatter and sicker. 
right? And said, oh, see, cutting fat doesn't work. Well, it would have if we'd eaten the right kinds of foods. And then instead of saying, okay, so we need to focus on foods, we shifted from fat to carbs and cut carbs and started eating low-carb junk food and got fatter and sicker. So, you know, I, I think it's clear now that the right way to talk about diet and health is to talk about the foods. Talk about dietary patterns, talk about wholesome foods, what those are, how to recognize them, how to choose them. And Michael Pollan pretty much nailed it with eat food, not too much, mostly plants. I'd say that's the biggest difference from you know, 30 years ago. The other thing critically, Chuck, is I recognized in 1993, and I wasn't a medical student then, I was finishing my second residency in preventive medicine, um, that if you get diet right and you get exercise right and you don't smoke, this very short list of factors, you reduce your lifetime risk of any major chronic disease by something like 80%. So that, that hasn't changed. That evidence has, has basically been reinforced again and again and again over the years. So the value proposition of this has been the, the banner that I carry to all the battles of my career. And that, that's been a constant over just about 30 years. I can hear just about 18 million of our listeners right now saying, well, what if we eat a whole jar of nuts or guzzle down a gallon of olive oil every day? You're not saying that that is the healthy route to take, right? Well, but you know, let's be clear. If all you did was eat broccoli, that wouldn't be a healthy diet either. I think the critical issue is balance. So you could pick apart any approach to diet and say, well, what if I did it this way? And you could make it bad. You can obviously have a bad vegan diet. I mean, you know, Coca-Cola and uh, marshmallows, I suppose, could be a vegan diet. It would be a terrible vegan diet. So there's no descriptor of a diet that captures the quality of it. Um, But if I had to pick one word, and and, Mark and I did this in the book, we we said, what's the one word we would emphasize? Is it fat? Is it carbs? Is it calories? No, it's balance. A a good diet is a balanced diet. That's absolutely true of a whole food plant-based diet because, again, if you just ate nothing but spinach, is spinach a great food? Yeah. If you only ate spinach, would you have a great diet? No. So, no, you can't chug olive oil and you can't chow down on nuts. But, But the good news is a Mediterranean diet which uses olive oil to make food flavorful and delightful and palatable, nobody guzzles it there. You know, it's configured into a dietary pattern. And the nice thing about nuts is, you know, unless you adulterate them, so, you know, if you roast them, salt them, coat them with honey, you know, you're changing the equation. But if you're talking about raw nuts or dry roasted nuts, they're, they're, they're high in fat and so they're high in calories, but they're very satiating. You know, you, you, most people do not overeat raw walnuts, for example. Uh, honey roasted almonds, do you overeat those? Yeah, you may very well, right? But then that's a processed food. That's the difference. So minimally processing food, does many things that's good for us. One of them is it reduces the calories it takes to feel full. So the answer to those questions, the 18 million people answer asking those questions, no, you can't, you can't guzzle olive oil clearly. Before we move on to uh, the COVID, because I definitely want to get to COVID-19 with you, uh, you mentioned chocolate uh, a little bit earlier in there. That's something that you, you speak about in the book as well. Uh, I can think of no more delicious combo on the face of the earth than chocolate and nuts. Where is it that, by and large, as a society, we go wrong when it comes to chocolate? There's that big debate, milk chocolate, dark chocolate, white chocolate. Where are we going wrong when it comes to chocolate? Okay, yeah, if there is a big debate, there shouldn't be. So white chocolate isn't even chocolate. There's no cocoa in it. And really what defines chocolate is cacao or cocoa. So, you know, essentially um, deriving the product from the the cocoa bean. 
Uh, and when you make milk chocolate, you're adding milk products to it. And a lot of the fat is dairy fat. And, you know, it, it's obviously no longer a vegan product. If you avoid adding dairy, the, the cocoa bean is a plant and it's a, it's a plant-based product. So you can have vegan chocolate. Uh, but inevitably, vegan chocolate is dark chocolate. And dark chocolate's better, vegan or not, because the, the bioflavonoids, the fiber, the magnesium, all the arginine, all the good stuff. And there are lots of really good nutrients in cocoa beans. That's a kind of bean. Uh, all of that is concentrated in the cocoa powder and the cocoa butter. And that comes from the, the, the source of dark chocolate. Everything that's added to turn dark chocolate into milk chocolate dilutes all that good stuff and adds stuff that you don't particularly want, like the saturated fat, extra calories from dairy. So dark chocolate's definitely the way to go. If you're asking you know, for health purposes, without question, dark chocolate is actually actively good for you with a caveat. And the caveat is like guzzling olive oil, um, concentrated source of calories, you can overeat it. And, and overeating anything is no longer good for you. If, it, if you're eating a good amount, it wouldn't be over. So over implies too much. And so sure, you can overeat it. But, but good news again, you know, and kind of like nobody really does guzzle olive oil and most people don't overeat raw walnuts, dark chocolate is bittersweet. Sure, it's a bit sweet. There's some sugar added to it generally. You, you can have pure cocoa, which isn't sweet at all, but that's not very palatable. So, you know, 60%, 70% dark chocolate is bittersweet. But the bitterness actually attenuates appetite. You're not as prone to overeat dark chocolate as you are milk chocolate. So lots of good stuff about it. And, and lastly, um, although it's a concentrated source of saturated fat, the particular fatty acid that predominates in dark chocolate, stearic acid, does not have inflammatory properties, does not have atherogenic properties, it doesn't contribute to coronary disease. Uh, it's a unique fatty acid. And, and so it's an important concept. Not all saturated fat is created equal. The saturated fat in chocolate is quite different from the saturated fat found in meat and dairy, for example. I think your next book should be the Encyclopedia of Chocolate. You just dropped a whole lot of facts we, on us, we, man. Well, in fact, it hasn't been an encyclopedia, but um, colleagues and I have done some research on chocolate, published numbers of paper, and we did a, a, an intensive review article on the health effects of cocoa some years ago. So yeah, I, I'm well steeped in, in the lore of chocolate. All right. Well, let's uh, move on here. I, I have you here. So we have to talk about COVID-19 to say sure. that the world is in a pickle right now would absolutely be an understatement. You and I had the opportunity to discuss this a little bit on the exam room live on Wednesday show, but I wonder if you could also for the podcast listeners here today, talk a little bit about your experience working on the front lines. You said it was up at Montefiore, I believe in the Bronx. Yeah, yeah. So Montsphere has several campuses. I worked at one of them, volunteered uh, in the emergency department to help manage the, the patients with COVID that were admitted, but had no place to go because the hospital was full. And um, I did three 12 hour shifts and it was intense. Um, it was illuminating. Uh, it, it was difficult. You know, obviously saw ambulance after ambulance from nursing homes with uh, elderly sick people coming in with the acute symptoms of COVID. Uh, it was also fascinating to see how quickly clinical treatment protocols were evolving. My colleagues were telling me that patients who would have been put on a ventilator just a week before were not being put on a ventilator because they had learned in just that span that 
patients with COVID do much better if you can keep them off the vent. So I was involved directly in, in repositioning patients and, you know, trying to help aerate their lungs and keep them off the ventilator. And I saw that work. It was amazing. I mean, there were patients who were in respiratory distress. A few days earlier would have been intubated, put on a ventilator. We, we didn't do that. We gave them high flow oxygen. We repositioned them and within an hour they were getting better. Uh, so it was really exciting to see how steep the learning curve was and how quickly the, the new insights were being applied. I saw bad stuff. I saw people die. Um, but I respected the disease before. You know, it's not like I needed an education in that. It, it actually reaffirmed, Chuck, most of what I thought was true, uh, and it just provided a more intimate view. It was clear to me from scrutinizing the literature and the data that COVID is a really bad disease in people vulnerable to it, and that's mostly older people and people with chronic illness like diabetes, heart disease, obesity, stuff that, by the way, is preventable and fixable. And it's mostly a mild disease in young, healthy people. And that's just what I saw in the ER. So again, ambulance after ambulance, mostly from nursing homes with people who are old and already quite sick, who were terribly ill with COVID and um, many of them prone to die. Uh, and then a lot of young people coming into the emergency room for various things, many of them had COVID and didn't even know it. So just exactly what you'd expect to see based on the epidemiology. Let's let's talk about those uh, younger people, not the elderly population, but the younger people who have those chronic conditions. New York did such a tremendous job of uh, really keeping the public updated as far as the statistics on the comorbidities and COVID-related deaths. And I mean, right up there are just so many of those diseases you were you were talking about: hypertension, heart disease, uh, cancer, uh, diabetes. So many of these things. And that is really at the heart of preventative medicine is treating the root cause and, and not just the symptoms here. If, if everyone had adopted a healthier diet, took the advice that you have in your book, How to Eat, how much less of a, a burden would the U.S. be facing right now with this pandemic? So there's nothing that we would have done here in the U.S. with diet that would have prevented this. But let's be clear. If nobody were eating meat, we wouldn't have this pandemic in the first place because it began with the meat trade. So it was a wet market in, in Wuhan, China. Um, you know, frankly, the global appetite for meat uh, causes tremendous environmental damage, disrupts ecosystems, exposes us to pathogens that are native to different kinds of animals, and has been a source of most great pandemics in the modern age. So if the global appetite for meat went away, most, if not all, of the, these pandemic plagues would go away. That's really important. Uh, but you know, in terms of the contributions of lifestyle chronic disease to the risk once we have the pandemic, colleagues and I actually have done two papers on this now, and uh, one's published, one's in press at the Journal of Emerging Infectious Disease. 60% of American adults have one or more of the major risk factors for a bad COVID outcome. So we're not talking about the risk of getting infected. We're talking about the risk of getting really sick if you get this bug. And that means getting hospitalized, landing in the ICU, and potentially dying. 60% of us have one or more of these conditions. And the conditions would be obesity, type 2 diabetes, coronary artery disease, hypertension. If these conditions are well controlled, the risk goes down. So you know, the more severe these are, the, the, the greater the risk. 40% of Americans have two or more of these conditions. And everywhere we've seen a high mortality from this infection, it's been among people who are 
either A, old, or B, chronically ill, and mostly C, both of those. Um, so if you have chronic illness and you manage it well, you definitely can attenuate your risk. And I think that's the silver lining in this pandemic, Chuck. It, you know, if we had this terrible infectious disease and it could get any one of us at any time and there was nothing we could do about it, it would just be bad news. But what COVID is telling us is all the stuff that you should have been concerned about because it was a threat to your health over time, I'm giving you a reason to care immediately because now you're worried about getting infected and, you know, and, and maybe dying tomorrow or next week. People don't, the fight or flight response is not triggered by type 2 diabetes. It's not triggered by the fear of coronary artery disease. Yeah, 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 right? Because it takes a long time. Slow motion threats don't cause that acute anxiety. The pandemic that's causing the acute anxiety is shining a spotlight on, these are the things putting you at acute risk. And by the way, they're the chronic drains on your health too. So I don't think there's ever been a better time for a let's all get healthy together campaign. And the centerpiece of that would be optimizing diet. Everybody's shifting to less processed food, more plant food. And if we were to do that, almost all of this chronic disease burden could go away. In the short term, we can't eliminate all the coronary disease, all the diabetes, all the obesity, but we can improve it very quickly. We can improve our inflammatory responses very quickly. We're talking about hours and days with major effects in a span of just weeks. And remember, this pertains to 60% of adults in the country. So how big would the effect be? Massive. Uh, you know, we could slash the mortality rate from this infection because we would be eliminating the source of vulnerability in the population. We'd still have to be really careful about our older loved ones, and we, weren't, we wouldn't necessarily achieve a complete elimination of, of chronic disease, but we could, at a population level, reduce our vulnerability massively. And thinking as an individual, if you have one of these conditions and you started to use lifestyle as your medicine and eating better, you could make a major difference in your personal vulnerability to a, a, a severe case of this infection in hours, days, and, and a really significant effect within just weeks. And do you think that this is the wake-up call that not just the U.S., but really the entire world needs uh, on that front? I mean, we, we have such a massive pandemic right now. If it's not this, what is it going to take? Yeah, yeah. I, I hope so, Chuck. But, you know, so far the trends have been a little bit in the other direction because, you know, people are anxious and their lives have been disrupted and they've been sheltering in place and saying pass the potato chips. So we've actually seen some evidence that diet quality, you know, may have trended down and, and, you know, lots of people I know are referring to the COVID-19. In other words, the 19 pounds people have gained because they're sheltering in place with, with their anxiety. So, uh, you know, it remains to be seen. It ought to be. Uh, and, and if grownups were running the country, we would be looking both at the acute threat of the pandemic and the things that make us vulnerable and saying, if we put those two together, two pandemics are actually better than one because the pandemic of chronic disease is fixable. It's the source of the vulnerability really to the severe outcomes from the acute infectious pandemic. And, and the infectious disease is raising awareness of this vulnerability we were otherwise neglecting. Let's take advantage of that. That's a teachable moment. In preventive medicine, we speak of the teachable moment. This is it. Will we react that way? You know, I, I'm waving the flag, <laughs> but, uh, but it remains to be seen what, what the population actually does. We're trying, I'm trying individually, 
I, I know PCRM is, is certainly on the, the bandwagon there. I think our conference may elevate that concept. Uh, we're working on this at the True Health Initiative. We're working on this at my company, Diet ID. And I'm aware of many others who, who, who see the same opportunity here. So uh, here's hoping. All right. And uh, real quick, 60 seconds or less, because I know that you have to run. You're a busy guy. Uh, coming up at the International Conference on Nutrition and Medicine in early August, you will be giving a presentation that is called Eating as if the World Depended on It. I kind of feel like we just spent the last 25 minutes defining exactly what that is. I think so, too. And, and so, first of all, I'm delighted to be uh, presenting at the conference. Really proud. Uh, and exactly right. You know, so, for instance, how can you not love the Amazon rainforest, right? I mean, if you're a citizen of this planet, you've got to love the Amazon rainforest. We're destroying it. Why? You know, can we blame it all on a crazy president in Brazil? No. Blame it on the global appetite for meat. It's because it's profitable to burn down the Amazon, graze cattle, and sell it to satisfy European appetites and American appetites. So essentially, we all do need to eat as if the world depends on it because the world does. The, the treasures of the world, like the, the rainforest in the Amazon, the rainforest in Borneo, biodiversity, all of that is on the menu. As we make dietary choices, they have a massive major influence on our own medical destiny, but those choices reverberate to every aspect of planetary health. And we've only got 60 seconds, so I'll leave the rest for the talk, but I'm going to lay out that case and cite the evidence that we need to eat in a way that is both about the health of people and the health of the planet because there are no healthy people on a ruined planet. And what we put on our plate basically holds the fate of the planet in store. And, and so we have to think that way. The book, How to Eat, and also great COVID-19 related resources over on the True Health Initiative website. So we're going to put a link to both of those in the episode notes for this episode. Dr. David Katz, thank you so very much for your time today. Great to be with you, Chuck. Thanks for having me. Indeed, you can find a link to all of that in the episode notes. So if you're listening on Apple Podcast, all you need to do is scroll right on down. You can find the links right there as well as a link to register for ICNM. Save the dates for this. The International Conference on Nutrition and Medicine coming up August 6th through 8th. And Dr. Katz, he's going to be teaming up with Dr. Walter Willett from Harvard there as well. Going to be doing a whole other presentation than the one that we discussed. This presentation is called What's Behind Nutrition Controversies? Making Sense of Science. I mean, if that really doesn't tease you to go ahead and sign up to check out what they're going to be talking about, I don't know. That's a heck of a title for a presentation. I know I'm giddy to see it. Um, it's just going to be such a great event. Also scheduled, Dr. Michael Greger is going to be there. The one and only Dr. Christy Funk will be there. Dr. Kim Williams, Dr. Alan Desmond, the Fiber Queen, of course, Dietitian Lee Crosby. She's going to be there. Marco Borges, Dr. Barnard, so many great dignitaries, so many great names, and a ton of others. They will all be at ICNM this year. And for the first time ever, the event will be entirely online. So we want for you, please, if you're interested, to register right now. All you need to do is head over to pcrm.org slash ICNM and save those dates August 6th through 8th. And 
for you medical types, for you doctors and your, your medical workers, CME credits, they are indeed available. So we're going to educate you and we're going to give you credit for it. August 6th through 8th, pcrm.org slash ICNM. That's where you go to register or scroll on down to the episode notes and click that link. Moving on, could your blood type put you at greater risk for COVID-19? Well, researchers in Europe say they have found the answer, and that answer is yes. So what does that mean for you? Well, Dr. Neil Barnard joined me recently on The Exam Room Live to dive into this new research, and he's going to be answering the question, should your menu depend on the blood you have? Let's find out. Dr. Barnard, this is a really interesting study. What did researchers conclude here? Yeah, important stuff. Let me give you a little bit of background. Um, here are your red blood cells. And I guess as everybody knows that they, they travel in your bloodstream to deliver oxygen to your tissues. Uh, but they come in different varieties. And this is entirely genetic. Um, you can be type O. And type O blood, which is the most common blood type, this means that you don't have certain antigens on the surface of the cell. And antigens are proteins that can be recognized by uh, your immune system. I'm going to focus on an A antigen and the B antigen, and there are uh, lots of others. But let's say I'm not type O. Let's say I'm blood type A. That means you isolate the blood cells. They've got A antigens on them. What if I'm not O or A, but I'm type B? I've got B antigens on them. Some people get both, A and B. How does all this happen? Well, the way it happens is if mom was type O and dad was type B, you're going to get both. If both of them are type O, that's probably going to be your blood type. Okay. So the question is, does this affect your likelihood of developing COVID-19? And if you get it, are you going to do badly? Well, right out of the box, when, when the research uh was done on the first people to get infected in China. A report came out. It was a big study, more than 2,000 people. And they said the people with blood group A were more susceptible to the virus and people with blood group O were less susceptible to the virus. I got to tell you, when that report came out, everybody was skeptical. Reporters said, I'm not sure we believe it. It's a, it's a, a pre-publication document, hasn't been peer-reviewed. We can't make any sense of it. Well, how could this be true? That was not our reaction. In fact, we first reported on this, on this study that there, as soon as it came out because there was a lot of evidence we felt that meant it could be true. Here's why. Go back four years ago, 2016, people with blood group A were already shown to have increased risk of heart disease. Blood group O, reduced risk of heart disease. And if that's the case, then maybe since heart disease makes you more vulnerable to COVID, you could see the same change. But it wasn't just that. Uh, at Harvard University, they have the nurses health study, huge study, uh, and the health professionals follow-up study, also big. And they found that people who did not have type O blood were 11% more likely to have heart disease. Okay. So we decided this is probably a real, real thing. So where are we now? Yesterday, the New England Journal of Medicine comes out with a new article, and here's what they found. They looked at the risk of respiratory failure with COVID-19. In other words, you're infected, are you asymptomatic, no problems, don't even know you've got it, or 
do you go on and have your lungs just collapse and you're in big trouble? Blood group A, 45% increased risk. So of all the people COVID uh, who, carrying the coronavirus, if they had blood type A, they were at 45% higher risk of having respiratory failure. That's huge. Blood group O, 35% reduced risk. So it exactly fits the model that we thought it would, which is that the people with blood group O seem to do better, not just with heart disease, but also with COVID. The people who've got blood group A tend to do worse. So the $64,000 question then is, if blood group O is a little more protective and blood group A is at a little more risk, should I eat differently? And the answer is no. So do blood groups affect your risk? Yes. Should you eat a different diet? No, absolutely not. Why do I say that? Because back in 1996, I think it was, uh, a, a writer named Diadamo wrote a book called Eat Right for Your Type. And he said, okay, all you type O's, you should be having meat. All you type A's, you should be vegetarian or vegan or, or lean in that direction. Researchers then have studied different diets in different kinds of people. And what they found is that whether you're O, B, uh, A, AB, whatever your blood type, blood type, they do worse if they follow a meaty diet and they do better if they follow a plant-based diet. So even if blood group O is in, generally speaking, has less risk of heart disease, they do even better if they follow the type A diet, which says, says go vegan. So if I haven't got you totally confused, blood group does affect your risk one way or another. Think of it like smoking. Smoking makes you at higher risk for heart disease. Being a non-smoker reduces your risk. Does that mean a non-smoker should eat differently than a smoker? No. There are lots of things that affect our risk one way or another, but a plant-based diet, getting the cholesterol, the animal products out of your diet, that's the way to go no matter what. By the way, the exam room live, you can check that out Monday through Friday at noon Eastern, right over on the Physicians Committee's Facebook and YouTube pages. I call it the healthiest half hour anywhere online today because by golly, that is exactly what that show is. So on that same episode, Dr. Barnard was kind enough to stick around and he joined Dr. Jim Loomis and I as we opened up the doctor's mailbag to take your questions, all of them so great about nutrition. So our goal here is to raise our health IQs all together. Dr. Barnard, first question goes to you. Uh, we do know that being overweight is tied to so many of those underlying conditions that do increase the risk of COVID-19. And it sounds like Lisa has made a lot of progress in that department, but she could also use a little bit of help getting over that last hurdle. She writes, I only need to lose another five to seven pounds. And I decided to go whole food plant-based about a year ago because my cholesterol was high. So far, I've lost five pounds. Do you have any recommendations? I also eat avocado toast every day. Should I be eliminating avocados? Yes. <laughs> Asked and answered. I'm sorry to break your heart. Um, I'll tell you, when, when we do research studies, uh, when we track people who, who are losing weight, some people lose weight, the weight just comes right off and others have trouble and some, they're just kind of stuck. And so we'll, we'll do a contraband search. What we do is we ask people to write down everything they eat for a 48 hour period. And then what you're looking for 
are nuts, avocados, and oils. That's basically it. Or, or foods where, where there's a fair amount of grease in them. When you knock those out, the weight loss usually resumes. And uh, aren't avocados delicious? But um, they are so fatty that they have they pack a lot of a lot of calories. Put, put right, make beans on your toast. Make make like you're in Cancun. Put some beans and salsa on your toast. You'll be happy. Be- what kind of beans? This is interesting. Oh, you know, it's funny. Almost every country other than the United States has beans in some form for breakfast. And in in England, they'll have uh, baked beans. Same in Australia. Um, in much of the Middle East, hummus, which is of course the chickpea, um, is a is a breakfast food. And in uh, the Yucatan Peninsula, black beans are uh, traditional since centuries and centuries, probably thousands of years. Um, and so if you go on any breakfast bar in, in Cancun and all around there, black beans, salsa, jalapenos, it'll start your day off right. Oh, man, that sounds like your kind of breakfast. You get your, your famed vitamin J on there. <laughs> That's right. A jalapeno is always good for you. All right. Next question goes to Dr. Loomis. This one is from Annette on YouTube. She writes, my husband would like to know if it's possible to correct enlarged prostate with a whole food plant-based diet and get off of his medication. Any insight there? Um, I do not know of any evidence uh, that a whole food plant-based diet can uh, lower the size of of your your prostate gland. Um, There is actually, however, uh, some evidence that a whole food plant-based diet can help uh, prevent prostate cancer uh, or at least lower your risk. Uh, some fascinating research by Dean Ornish that looked at men who had low-grade prostate cancer uh, and, and divided them into two categories. One, uh, th- these were patients who they were using a watchful waiting treatment protocol, which means no, no, no drugs, no, no radiation or anything like that. They were just following these patients along. They divided them into two groups. One was on a plant-based diet with exercise and stress management. The other just kind of went about their business. And it, at the end of a year or so, the PSA level, which is how we, how we track uh, prostate cancer, uh, actually went down in the treatment group. And again, the treatment wasn't radiation. It wasn't hormones. It wasn't surgery. It was food primarily. Uh, the PSAs actually trended down. The other group, the standard, the, the control group, if you will, the group that continue to standard American diet, their their PSAs went up. But even more fascinating to me was the fact they showed hundreds literally of cancer promoting genes uh, turned off in the treatment group. Um, And and so it's the idea that the lifestyle that we lead, the food that we eat can have a profound, what we call an epigenetic effect on our health, that that our our food and, and exercise and stress and such can turn some of these genes on and off. So, um, uh, so, although it may not inc- lower your, uh, you know, lower it, reduce the size of your prostate gland, it can certainly make you much healthier overall, and may in fact um, uh, reduce your risk for developing prostate cancer uh, down the road. All right, Dr. Byrne, our next question comes to you. This is from Marcus, posted at 1221. Oh, boy, he could use some help. I've been plant-based for several years now, and I still find myself giving in to cravings for donuts and snack cakes, even when I'm not hungry. My biggest weakness right now is cherry pies from Hostess. If <laughs> if you could please help him out, what he could do to stop that, that would be fantastic. Okay, I feel your pain. You know, you're you're not alone. Uh, so many people have have that, and and the food marketers are dangling foods in front of you every time you go in the Seven Eleven or gas station. They've got these foods all over the place. Um, s- several things. First of all, let's let's understand why we might want to break up with some of these junk foods. Um, when you look at the label, um, 
you'll see that they list total fat. And then right under it, they list saturated fat. And if that's a few grams of saturated fat, that's the one that's linked to Alzheimer's disease and to heart disease. And that's the one that's really a killer in so many ways. And so many snack foods, they add palm oil, um, coconut fat, or uh, hydrogenated oils as a way of giving them a more of a, a, a mouthfeel, a uh, buttery type of mouthfeel. But they're really hurting the healthfulness of the product, plus they add sugar and all kinds of other junk. So how do you break up these things? First of all, it's good to know why you might want to. Um, your waistline will thank you. Your brain will thank you. So so your heart. And then I think the issue really is to sort of build resilience. Um, and how do we do that? Number one, uh, this probably doesn't uh, apply to you, but don't starve. For people who are trying to lose weight, you want to make sure that you're not hungry all the time. So the old-fashioned calorie counting diet, that just sets you up to binge. So don't do that. Uh, eat healthy vegetables, fruits, whole grains, beans, so that you're full and not attracted to these things. Um, do get a good night's rest. Um, and the reason I say that is, you know this is true, if you had a rocky sleep last night, you're going to eat anything today just, just to get through the day. Um exercise is a really good thing. Why? Because if your muscles are tired at the end of the day, you do sleep better and then you feel better tomorrow. And also while you're exercising, you can't eat pie. Um, so uh, the last thing I might mention is certain foods tend to drive cravings. Sugary foods make your blood sugar rise. And then as it's just as your blood sugar is falling, that's often when the, the cravings really kick in. So you'll want to eat foods that keep your blood sugar steady that's beans, uh, green vegetables, uh, and uh, getting away from sugar and and uh, white bread. Those are the things that are going to be a problem for you. So I hope that helps, and good luck. All right, Dr. Loomis, this next question comes to us from Robert, wrote this in at 1226. He writes, if you limit oils and avocados, things of that nature, how do you get the fat that your brain needs? Well, so... It, it is a fact that, that our brains need fat, and primarily the omega-3 fatty acids are the, the most important for brain health. But there's omega-3 fatty acids in plants, and so, so chia seeds, hemp seeds, um, um, in small walnuts and, you know, in small doses all have o- omega-3 fatty acids. Even broccoli has omega-3 fatty acids. So, you know, if, if, as long as you're getting uh, enough uh, calories from a – wide variety of whole food plant-based foods, um, it's easy to get enough omega-3. Now, the only caveat to that is, is that um, the other side of the omega-3 coin is omega-6s, and omega-6s are highly inflammatory. And we need need inflammation because we need to heal wounds and fight infections. And so, so, um, in fact, we probably need more omega-6 than we need omega-3 because evolutionarily we had to fight infections and heal wounds to, to survive. It, typically, we ingest short chain fatty acids um, on, on each side, and then they get elongated down to the DHA, EPA on the omega three side, and then the arachidonic acid on the omega six side. The problem is, is that that there's competition for the enzymes that elongate those um, those uh, fatty, short chain fatty acids, and if you have a very high omega six intake, it's hard to get in. You can't convert enough omega three, so that's why it's important to limit in, in a, on a plant based diet. Uh, the major source of omega sixes are edible oils. Uh, so even a uh, even like olive oil is is uh, thirteen to two somewhere in there. Omega six to omega three. Corn oil eighty three to one somewhere in there. Very very high levels of omega six. Highly inflammatory, and that's in fact why 
most of the omega sixes in a, in a standard American diet come from meat and dairy because what we feed, we you know, we actually mix corn oil in with the feed to fatten up the cows and, and chickens and, and even fish now. So um, um, it's not a huge concern. Um, now, some experts like Dr. Greger do recommend uh, taking an omega three algae based omega three supplement. I, I think if, however, you're able to really follow a, 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 an oil-free or relatively oil-free, low-fat, high-fiber plant-based diet, that's probably not necessary. Um, there are some patients who have chronic inflammatory diseases where I do manage them for the short term with omega-3 supplements, but that's individual. That's that's uh, based on the individual's uh, specific uh, uh, medical history. So I hope that helps. All right. Uh, wow. Anders is in the chat box, says he's 11 years old, went vegan two months ago and whole food plant based oil free one month ago. And Anders says he just convinced his dad to go vegan as well. And he's doing well and happily reading the vegan starter kit. How great is that? 11 years old. Good for you, man. That's awesome. Uh, Dr. Barnard, coming to you with this next question. I'm very interested in hearing a doctor's perspective on the connection between ADHD and diet in preteens. We eat primarily plant-based in my home, but my children do splurge when they're away or with my parents. Are there any clinical trials that show significant improvement in symptoms when the diet is altered? Uh, great question, but let me go back to Anders, uh, first of all, for a second. Anders, I want to congratulate you. It's great what you're doing, and it's, you're an inspiration to your whole family, so good on you. And let's talk about just the rules of what a healthy vegan diet is, too, because that's really important for your family to, to know, and, and for you, too. There's four healthy food groups, vegetables, fruits, whole grains, beans, and the bean group includes lentils and peas. But also, don't forget your vitamin B12. You need that for healthy nerves and healthy blood. And it's in the pediatric multiple vitamins like Flintstones vitamins. But if you're not taking those, it's good to make sure you go to the store, a health food store or pharmacy or whatever, and, and have vitamin B12. You, can, you need a, just a small amount, but you don't want to miss it because people run into big trouble if they're not getting B12 every day. And then foods to emphasize, green leafy vegetables in any form that you can get them in. Uh, that's great. So anyway, congratulations to you, Anders. Um, okay, back to the question about attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, ADHD. Back years ago, uh, a very, um, I think, well-meaning and good um, pediatrician named Ben Feingold said that um, hyperactivity was triggered by food colorings. But it turned out that that was true for some kids, but not for most kids. Researchers later said, well, it's not just food colorings. It's sugar and caffeine and all the junk that kids are getting. And that seemed to play a role, too. And then researchers are going further and saying, well, maybe it's not just the colorings and the flavorings and the sugar and caffeine, but also things like dairy might play a role, too. The clinical trials that have been done have not gotten that far. They've gotten through the colorings and flavorings and some other things. But to my knowledge, nobody has yet tested a low-fat, healthy, plant-based diet like Anders is following. Nobody has yet tested that for ADHD. I think it's a research that we do need. But there's every reason to get away from the junk food and to get away from animal products, particularly dairy, um, and see if that doesn't help not only physical health but also mental health. Flintstones vitamins, man, I haven't thought about those in about two or three decades. That's yeah. a, that's a yeah, throwback right there. The, the, re the reason I mention it is people might imagine vitamin B12, where am I going to find it? It's really complicated. It's in every multiple vitamin you ever took, whether it's one a day or 
or you know the one that they sell at uh, the CVS or the Walgreens or, or or even Flintstones vitamins. The thing that worries me is some people will imagine, well, food ought to give me everything, and I don't want to take any any uh, vitamins at all. But vitamin B12 isn't made by plants or animals; it's made by bacteria, and a lot of people can miss it. So um, I want to keep make sure that everyone is a healthy, great advertisement for a healthy plant based diet. All right. Uh, Dr. Loomis, follow-up question here from Anders. If I put kale into my smoothie, does it take nutrients out or does the nutrient level stay the same? So that's a great question. Um, You don't lose a lot of nutrients per se, um, but one of the benefits of kale besides the nutrients is the fiber in the the kale. Um, Huge, hugely beneficial fiber in general. And one of the problems is, is that um, when you put kale in a high-speed blender um, to make a smoothie, for example, um, it does seem that the, the, because the kale gets kind of pre-digested um, um, by, by the blender itself, that it may alter the chemical, the physical structure of the kale and, and make it, uh, of the, I'm sorry, of the fiber in the kale, which, which may make it less beneficial uh, to your body because um, and especially for patients who have type 2 diabetes or something like that, it also can, uh, putting fruits and, and uh, especially fruits, but also some vegetables, uh, putting fruits in, the, in, a, in a blender does kind of re- pre-release the sugar uh, that normally our bodies would have to do work to release. So it does raise what we call the glycemic load or the glyce- uh, of the, that's the propensity of a given food to raise blood sugar. So you have to be a little bit careful. Um, with with using smoothies, I think they can play a role if you're in a hurry and and such. But and uh, and 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 it, you're using it as a meal replacement. I think it's okay. But but if you're going to go to all that trouble, why don't you just steam the kale and put some balsamic vinegar on it and eat it right to eat the whole food because because then you're going to get be sure you get all of the nutrients in their intact form and the way that nature really designed them to be used. All right. And the last question comes to us from Lauren. And by the way, a lot of you guys are really on board with the bean and toast breakfast idea. And this is just amazing to me. So many great ideas are being shared in the chat box now. This is phenomenal. Uh, Final question comes from Lauren at 1232. Dr. Barnard, we're going to send this one over to you. I have a grandmother and significant other who each have blood cancer. Can you talk about these various types? She said CLL and CTCL. And are they impacted by plant-based diets? Do we have any data on that? Dr. Bronner? Okay. Dr. Loomis, why don't you go ahead and take this one? We appear to be having technical difficulties. Sure. Um, again, I don't know of any uh, research specifically around uh, the role plant-based diets have on, on uh, uh, blood cancers. Um there is some evidence, again, this is epidemiologic data. Uh, if you look at, say, uh, uh, the risk for non-Hopkins lymphoma, which, which some of these blood cancers uh, are kind of a variant of, um, we know that, that um, not ingesting a lot of fruits and vegetables and such may increase your risk. Um, but, and that's true for most chronic diseases actually and it probably has to do with inflammation as a is a is a role in damaging dna and which is really what causes these these blood cancers but but again not a lot of evidence we have we have a you know fortunately there is pretty good evidence around the role that 
plant-based diets play in the treatment prevention, even reversal of heart disease and type 2 diabetes and high blood pressure. But cancer in general is a place where there has just not been a lot of research. And um, 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 I think more research needs to be done. Certainly not going to hurt anything, though, going on a plant-based diet or a healthy plant-based diet um, to improve your overall health as you're dealing with these other health issues. If you would like to schedule an appointment with Dr. Loomis at the Barnard Medical Center, you can do just that by visiting barnardmedical.org or pick up the phone, call 202-527-7500, 202-527-7500, quick and easy unless you've got an old school rotary phone. My grandma had one of those. Completely side note here, my grandma back in the day, 30 some odd years ago, God bless her, was one of the last people on the face of the earth, I'm convinced, that had a rotary phone. Took you 10 minutes if you were calling long distance and god forbid you ever miss one number because then you had to start over and you wouldn't finish until your next birthday anyway so assuming that you don't have a rotary phone you can do this much quicker call 202-527-7500 or do it the modern way visit barnardmedical.org all of the doctors and dietitians there put a premium on nutrition they treat the cause and not just the symptom we were talking about that with dr david katz preventative medicine. So important. New patients are being accepted if you live in California, New York, Washington, D.C., Maryland, Virginia, Missouri, Arizona, Colorado, Massachusetts, and Kentucky. All you need to do to make that appointment again, barnardmedical.org or 202-527-7500 is the phone number to call and they come to you. This is indeed the 21st century doctor's house call via the wonders of telemedicine. And by the way, If you would like to make the world a healthier place right now, you can do that. You can help us out by subscribing to the Exam Room Podcast by the Physicians Committee and help us get this information, this inspiration to those who need it the most. Let's try to save a life together, shall we? So here's how this works. The more subscriptions and the more five-star ratings we have with the podcast, the higher we climb in the rankings. And the higher we climb, the easier it becomes for those who need this the most to find us. And that's what this is all about. So really to help that person get on a path toward a healthier life, all you have to do is head over to Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Stitcher, wherever shows are available, hit that subscribe button, And please also leave a five-star rating. And if you're feeling extra generous, a nice review as well. Because again, the more high ratings we get, the more subscriptions we get, the easier it becomes for people to find us, and the more this information gets out to the masses. Before we go today, I want to take a minute to give a special shout out to Vic Houtman. Now, he is the founder of Cruelty Free You and Me, and that is based in Chicago. This past weekend, in honor of Father's Day, Mr. Houtman helped to organize a plant-based food drive for African-American dads living in the Windy City. And their efforts, how cool is this? Their efforts resulted in 75 bags of plant-based groceries and pre-made meals being distributed to those in need. He tells Veg Out Magazine, quote, we wanted to ensure all dads, including black dads, felt love, 
support, and appreciation on Father's Day. Indeed they did. My hat is off to you, Mr. Houtman, and everybody who pitched in to make that event such an incredible success. Giving back, man, that's where it's at. And for today, that is all the time that we have. Thank you so very much for joining us. For everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Remember, until next time, stay safe, take a stand, and keep it plant-based. <laughs>